Okay, let's get into the Word of God for a little bit tonight together. Are we ready for that? Okay. Well, may you receive a blessing at the level of your enthusiasm. So, I'll ask again. This is for your benefit. Are you ready to receive from the Word of God tonight? There you go. Somebody over here is getting really blessed. I heard that one. Praise God. Listen, we're so happy you're here. Thank you for letting us take that that family moment and really expanding our family. We appreciate that you would give us the honor of your time and attention while we did that. And we are so blessed that we have uh, Tarsicio and Protero with us tonight. And we welcome all of you back home to King of Kings. Welcome everybody watching online, Kings Community Live and Facebook Live, YouTube, other platforms. Welcome to Jerusalem. Listen, we've got some friends watching from all over the world. Um, Austria is a good one. Uh, Brazil. There's people in Brazil watching right now. Look at that. That's amazing. Canada, China, Finland, France, India, other parts of Israel, Japan, Kenya, Norway, Peru, the Philippines, Poland, Singapore, Slovakia, South Africa, Sweden, Switzerland, United Kingdom, United States, Zimbabwe, and others that didn't tell us, welcome to King of Kings. We're glad you're here with us tonight. It's a special holiday. I think we all know that. But it's a holiday that is falling in the middle of a very difficult time. And as Chris said, and thank you, Chris, for uh, doing such a wonderful reading. Uh, You know, Chris has been one of our longtime deacons, but he's also on the Amutah board and serves us so well. He reminded us that this year in, in, in Hanukkah has some similarities to the original Hanukkah, right? We understand that they were in a war and we are in a war at the same time that all of this is happening. Interestingly enough, Syria was involved in both. You know, in, in, in the Maccabean day, it was the Greek Syrian army, right? The Seleucids that you read about. But now it's, it's Hezbollah out of Syria and partnering with Hamas and other regions. Uh, but, but Syria is somewhat involved. Now, in the history of this, Antiochus IV, he ruled Syria from about 175 to 164 or 163 BC. But did you know that he carried this this surname or this substitute name for himself, the the Epiphanes name? Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus Epiphanes, depending on how you say it. And and that word means God manifest. Now, you can see why that didn't go over very well with the Jews, you don't, you don't, to a people looking for a Messiah to be God manifest, you don't come into their land and into their temple and claim to be God manifest. I'm sure that stirred up some, some feelings. They were dealing with a ruler who claimed to be a God in some ways. And of course, this is a false God. And today we're dealing with false gods again from other religions and Allah and beyond. Now, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, this Antiochus figure, he made people also refer to him not only as God manifest through epiphanies, he made them refer to himself as Baal. Isn't that interesting? He resurrected an old ancient Canaanite pagan idol name And he said, you're going to call me this. In the holy place, you're going to call me this. Really poking it to Israel. Really poking it to them. He promoted the worship of Zeus and and many other 
horrible things that were happening in Israel at the time. And of course, we've gone through our share of loose connection to similar things along the way. And so with that as a background, I want us to be thinking of how we would answer some difficult questions tonight. And I do want to honor some people as we get started. I want to honor one of my spiritual fathers and mentors, Don Fento. I do see you here today, brother. I know you tried to slip in quietly, but I see you. Thank you, Don. From Caleb Company, we appreciate you being here from Nashville. Bless you. Pastor Trey Graham from First Melissa Church in Melissa, Texas, serves on our King of Kings international team, helps us with King of Kings tours. Thank you, Pastor Trey, uh, as well. And Martin Mallory, we thank you for being here because you've been an answer to our prayers We've been praying for extra counselors to fly into Israel to help us with our counseling centers, with the trauma and the crisis counseling. You've been an answer to prayer, brother. Thank you, Martin, for being here uh, with us over these next weeks. Now, not all of the story of Hanukkah is bad. You might say, Pastor Chad, why, why, do, you, why do you celebrate Hanukkah? Why do we celebrate Hanukkah? You could say, maybe it's an Israeli holiday. Maybe they should celebrate it. But why should believers look at it? Well, listen, first of all, we're not going to mandate that you celebrate it. If you want to celebrate it, celebrate it. But I can tell you that it's found in the New Testament. And we see that during the holiday of Hanukkah is one of the moments that Yeshua claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God during the Festival of Lights, Right? The book of John, you can find that. The Feast of Dedication is mentioned there. So I figured if it's good enough for Yeshua, it's good enough for me. It's not a commanded festival, but I see the richness in it. And it's really elevating and glorifying God for his miracles. There's a lot of good parts to this story. We can look at the courage of the Maccabee family, God's miracles during the military victory, taking back the temple, cleansing the temple, the temple practices resume, the miracle of the oil of the menorah that Chris was reading about. But we also understand that there are a few things that are not good that came out of the story. The story is good, but in the end, some not good things came out of the story as well. For instance, it's thought that an inappropriate high priest was set in place at the end of the Hanukkah story. And according to uh, Vasily Babota in his book, The Institution of the Hasmonean High Priesthood, that Jonathan Maccabee, he ruled as a military and civil leader, and he neglected his religious duties and showed little regard for Jewish halakha. So wouldn't that be odd to have a high priest who doesn't care about the word of God? He doesn't care about the Torah or the practices or the halakha. He doesn't even care about being the high priest. He was using it primarily as a military tool. As a, as a civic or civil leadership tool. That's not good. And you might say, well, that was maybe it was only temporary until a, new, a real high priest could be found. But the problem is, as the story goes on, in the aftermath of this, you know, for nearly 30 years, the Maccabees were ruling as different high priests. And you'll see the different brothers ruling. And, and none of them really focused on the biblical example of the high priesthood. They really just used it as a political uh, position as they dealt with their oppressors. So that's not good. A lot of uh, turmoil and friction happened between the, the Jewish factions who fought for dominance of the leadership during the time of the Maccabees, including the Hellenized Jews. 
and the Seleucid leaders as they continued their influence on the prominent Jews of the region, bribing a bunch of people. If you've ever read the full story of the Maccabees, you're gonna find a lot of political maneuvering and a lot of bribery happening to get in that position of the inappropriate high priesthood. So while most of the story is wonderful of God's wonderful victory in his miracle of the oil, there are parts of it historically that we have to look at and say, okay, I'm embracing the big picture. I'm not necessarily embracing all of that part of it. You know what I mean? So now let's take the Maccabean story and let's overlay it with some questions from the Bible that should be asked. One we've already touched on. Was the high priest at this newly dedicated temple a biblically eligible priest from Aaron's line? Well, although the Maccabees are thought to be from the line of Levi, from the tribe of Levi, they do not appear to be in the line of Aaron. They are Levitic, so they should have been working in the temple for sure, but to be the high priest, you had to be in a particular family in the Kohanim family of Aaron. So conceivably, they, they could have served as priests, but not high priests. So Jonathan and his brother Simeon Maccabee, who served in these roles of high priesthood, again, they used it more for political gain and military control as opposed to the biblical roles, as we mentioned. So this illegitimate high priesthood, maybe we don't love so much. But we see this illegitimacy, it continues for many years, even showing up during the Roman rule of Israel, in Yeshua's day, in John's day, there's still an inappropriate high priest. So something that the Maccabees did, it carried forward into a, a high priest who should not have been high priest. So that little mistake, it, it carried forward into the time of John and Yeshua. Now, how did John handle it? Well, John, who was a, a Levite himself, by the way, don't forget being born from Zechariah, who was serving at the temple. John disconnected himself from all of the corruption. John was basically saying, this is not a legitimate high priest. You're not doing legitimate things in the temple. You're, you're, you're bribing people, you're selling people things, you're making money. This is not even what the, the priesthood was supposed to be. And John disconnects himself completely from the priesthood and he goes off into the desert, receives the word of the Lord about what he's gonna become, the forerunner for the Messiah. That's how John handled it. And we know how Yeshua handled it. Yeshua had to deal with the inappropriate high priest more than once right? There, there, was, there was the one time where he's taken before the Sanhedrin, and we'll see what you think about this. I have my own take on it. He's before the Sanhedrin, and somebody in the group speaks to him, and he responds quite sharply, and they slap Yeshua, and they say, you don't speak to the high priest that way. And he says, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know he was the high priest. You think that was on accident? God Almighty, omniscient, knowing everything, didn't know? Or was he sending a message? Uh, you know, is he the high priest? Uh, we know what Yeshua was doing. So that's, that's one question we're answering. Yeshua was later accused and sentenced by the high priest Caiaphas, who was uh, uh, the one in office at the time of his death. And you remember there were people in the family, uh, Ananias and Caiaphas were in the same family. 
and they were uh, back-to-back high priests. But the second main question is whether or not it is appropriate to revolt, to wage war, to have a military campaign, to recapture the temple and Jerusalem, or to pursue independence for Israel. I think that question should be asked because that's a very appropriate question that we need to settle today as well as modern Jewish and non-Jewish believers in Yeshua. I'm getting this question a lot, so I really want to dive into it, not only from a cultural perspective, but from a biblical perspective. I'm getting this question a lot. You know, Pastor Chad, aren't we supposed to be ultimate pacifist? And aren't we supposed to turn the other cheek? And aren't we supposed to just let people run all over us? And uh, well, look, the Bible has some very important things to say about this. And I thought tonight would be a great night to just walk through a, a few basic principles that I want to teach you from the Word of God. This type of question is very similar to what we're dealing with today. And we would summarize it by saying this. Is war okay and permitted from a biblical point of view? Well, let's look at it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'll read you a few excerpts from that chapter. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So according to Ecclesiastes, It's not that you go out and just do war all the time anytime you want to, but there can be an appropriate moment for war according to Ecclesiastes. What's interesting, as you look back in the Tanakh, we certainly know that that God called for war at certain times. God brought great victories to Israel many times in helping them in these wars to have victory and to conquer. They were commanded to come out of Egypt and to go straight into Israel and conquer the covenant land that they were promised. But obviously God knew that when he told them to do that and he used the word conquer, that war was going to be part of conquering. God knew that. As a matter of fact, Israel was punished because they didn't go to war fast enough, if I could say it that way. They were supposed to immediately come out of Egypt, cross the Red Sea, celebrate, receive the Torah at Mount Sinai, set up the elders, and get their people toward the land, start conquering. But because the spies convinced the Israelites that they were not strong enough or mighty enough, that they shouldn't go in, and they spied the land for 40 days, God gave them a punishment of one year in the desert for every day in the land that they did not start Conquering. That's why they were in the land for 40 years. Now, how do all of these verses help us to understand other parts of the Bible? How about Israel under Moses or under Joshua's leadership, under King Saul or David's conquests? How do all of those victories of war, God's miraculous presence, the walls of Jericho, the hail coming down from heaven, blindness, confusion from heaven that defeats the enemy's armies, how does all of that play into Yeshua's teachings in the New Testament? Well, one of Yeshua's teachings actually starts in the Torah, so let me read it for you. Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. This is the source for which 
Yeshua gets Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 and beyond. It's a famous quote. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And then Yeshua replied, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't make up that law. He's quoting from Leviticus 19. So now we have to start a journey together. Yeshua's commandment was that you would love your neighbor. Do not take revenge. So what does it mean to love your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Maybe we should identify who that is so we can know what to do for them. Well, you know, Yeshua was asked that very question in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, on one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Yeshua. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So now we get it for the third time. You have answered correctly, Yeshua replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Yeshua, who is my neighbor? See, he wanted to know too. In order to love your neighbor, you got to know who that is. And the answer to the question that Yeshua gave here was the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, you have this uh, person on a highway, robbers come, they beat him up, they steal everything. They leave him on the side of the road injured for dead. And then you have a religious person coming, doesn't have time to stop because he's got to get to his religious duties. You have a priest coming. He doesn't have time to stop. He's got sacrifices to go, go do. He can't stop to help you either. And then here comes that good Samaritan in the story, and he stops, and he helps. And Yeshua says, that is your neighbor. Hmm. We should take that into account why Yeshua answered this way. And Yeshua answered this question by telling that story. And in the story, he makes it clear that your neighbor is any individual in your sphere of life or sphere of influence in which you have the opportunity to love through serving them. That becomes your neighbor, whoever that is. If they are in your sphere of life or sphere of influence and you have the opportunity to stop and love through serving, then we are commanded as New Covenant believers to stop and love our neighbor as ourselves. And now we can define what Yeshua meant as who is your neighbor. But we have other verses that we need to make sure we pair together in context. Psalm chapter 82, verse 2 through 4. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? But defend the weak and the fatherless and uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's another commandment. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You might say, well, they're not in my sphere of influence. I don't know them. The Bible says, yes, but in that context, we're no longer talking about your individual sphere of influence. We're talking about 
Anyone who's being oppressed by the wicked, evil forces, you need to do what you can along with others to go set them free. Psalm chapter 146, 6 and 7. The Lord God, he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. So we know as believers that we have a certain mandate to help the poor, to help the weak, to help free people from the hand of wicked enemies, to help set innocent prisoners free, to help free the captives, and to defend those who are being attacked. So from that perspective, we have an obligation collectively, corporately, to move into action. And we're going to keep teaching you this in a couple of more stories where you see the context, because I want you to start learning why context matters. I want you to learn some key things tonight before you leave so that you will know how to answer all of your friends on Facebook. My wife is good on Facebook. I don't do Facebook for lots of reasons. I don't need one more thing to check. I got so many things to check right now. I don't need another thing. But I also know myself, and I know my competitive nature. And if you start to argue with me on Facebook, I'll stay up till three in the morning trying to prove you wrong. <laughs> and for my own sanity, the sanity of my family, and for the blessing of King of Kings, I'm not on Facebook. You're welcome. But listen to this, friends. This is the part that worries me a little bit. Because the gospel has been preached wrongly over the last generation or so, many believers have forgotten the difference between individualism and the corporate entity of the kingdom of God. Here's a key phrase. We'll, we'll give you two tonight. Here's the first one, something you've heard me say at least a million times. The gospel of Yeshua is an individual invitation to join the corporate family of God. You get to decide as an individual, but when you come in, you come into the family, and the family has rules. The family has a city that you become a citizen of. It has a ruler of that city who's in charge of you, and it has rules. There are callings for individuals, but there are also callings for the corporate body of Messiah. The individual family has guidelines, and the body of Messiah and congregations have guidelines. We often say that what I shared at Kador Sheleg on Thursday was we, we change culture by building healthy families and healthy congregations. But the rules for both are slightly different in context. And we need to find some semblance of consistency in our life and in the Bible. For instance, many people praise God for his miraculous intervention during World War II that he Stopped evil forces. Praise God. God did that. The miraculous. A lot of people will praise God for the miraculous defeating of the Nazis. They'll praise God for the miracles that happened in 48 for Israel's war to become independent. We're going to praise God for that. We're going to see his hand all throughout the Bible that God intervened against the wicked. But then those same people don't understand the context when is the right time to go to war? And they'll just 
preach at you like there's never a right time. You're not allowed to go to war. If you're a believer, you're not allowed. But that would be taking the word of God out of context. That's not the context of what it's sharing. You know, you're gonna hear things like these biblical definitions to situations about what happened to the whole turn the other cheek verse. Well, when you're dealing with a war on terrorism and evil regimes throughout all of human history, we're not dealing with turn the other cheek in that moment. That's not the moment for that. That's, that's outside of the prescription of the Bible there. And we must remember this, that Yeshua's earthly ministry in his first coming, he was not leading as a conquering king at that moment. Therefore, his teachings were not primarily dealing with the concepts of what Israel should do as a military or as a nation against Rome when he came that first time. His teachings are not in that context. He's telling us there will come a day, but in that moment, he was ministering to the individual on an individual character development basis. And from that context, you get Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. When he says evil person, you have to understand that all through that passage, there's an individual person being described. It is not a corporate entity. It's not an army being described. It's not a government or a nation or a political party being described. It's an individual who has wronged you as an individual. From that perspective, you would turn the other cheek. But if somebody invades your country and starts killing your people, the context shifts from an individual turn the other cheek to the biblical mandate of stand up against the wicked when they try to oppress people. It switches in that moment. It's very important that we understand the word this way, that since his primary role in his first coming was to provide salvation for the individual who put their faith in his sacrificial work, he primarily taught on these individual dynamics. In a passage like this, Yeshua is addressing an individual, turn the other cheek, who has been wronged. He is not addressing national policy for Israel. Now, the same principle can be taken further in the same chapter of Matthew 5. Listen to what it says in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And you would say, see, Pastor Chad, right there. You gotta love your enemy. You gotta love the ones that persecute you. You've gotta let, let them steal what they wanna steal. You gotta let them hurt who they wanna hurt. And if you said that, you have not understood the Bible in its proper context. That passage about love your enemy goes back to the same individual definition we gave you before. Someone in your life sphere of influence that you have the individual opportunity to touch and love through serving. They have to be in your individual sphere of influence. We're not talking about armies, governments, nations, political parties. Romans 12, 
18 through 20. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will, reap, uh, you will heap burning coals on his head. Every word in that passage is an individual word. You, the individual, for him, the individual. It's not you, a nation, for them, a people group. Sometimes not even a nation. Be careful here. Make sure you're reading it in context. Maybe make sure you understand this and you can see the difference. Yes, we want to love our enemy, feed them, clothe them, but as individuals. Now, God never wants war. Let me just say it this way. God never wants war. That's not his heart's desire from the beginning. It became a necessary step, but it's not what he wanted from the beginning because war is caused by sin, pride, control, selfishness of the attackers. God wants the innocent defended and he wants justice. Deuteronomy 16, 20, follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. There in the context, justice is a national policy. That context becomes a national context for us to always promote justice so we can see and support these concepts of when is it right for an army to fight? When is it right to protect people and to defend the innocent and to save hostages? All of that comes into play when you look at the corporate dynamic. Now we know, here's something you may not like. If you're an absolute pacifist, you may not like this next one. We know at the end of the age that Yeshua will come back and he will not come back as a shy, gentle, sacrificed lamb next time. He will come back as a conquering king. And if you have staked your flag in the ground that says, never is it right to fight and conquer, you will not like this version of Yeshua. Roman, excuse me, Revelation chapter 6. I looked and therefore before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. You might say, no, no, I, I think Yeshua as a conqueror, it's more just imagery. I think, you know, he's just, he's just putting forth the image that he's strong. It says he is bent on conquest. That means he has a plan. He's not trying to trick you and intimidate you like, look at, my, look at my horse and look at my armor, look at my crown, be afraid of me and run. He's saying, I've been around the enemy and his people long enough. I know we're about to fight. And you better be blessed that he's fighting that war because he's fighting that war for you to set the captives free. Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and he wages war. There is a time for war. There's a time for peace. But hopefully peace is found when right things are put back into order when hostages are returned, when agreements can be made diplomatically, 
and people are not constantly under the threat of attack anymore. That's the time for peace. But until that moment, we have a mandate in that we have to help free the captive, set the prisoner free, stop the wicked. That's a time for war. Now you could say, but on the individual level, aren't we supposed to let somebody sin against us? Well, the Bible gives us prescription, Matthew 5, Matthew 18. It says, if someone sins against you and hurts you, first try to forgive. If you can't forgive, then try to cover it in love. And if you can't do that, then go the extra mile. And if you can't do that, then meet with the person one-on-one. -on -one. And if you can't get anywhere, then bring a witness with you. And if you still can't get anywhere, if they won't hear your heart, go get the elders, bring them with you. And if you, you still can't get them to see, they still won't repent, then there's a consequence to be outside the community. But all of that is done on an individual basis, not from a national perspective. I could go on and on. These principles follow true throughout the whole Bible. These same dynamics of individual commands versus corporate commands, they apply to many other contexts. On one hand, we should not be quick to judge someone's heart or their heart motive. But on the other hand, we are commanded to judge fairly and promote justice. So how can you have both of those? They sound opposite. No, they're two different contexts. Don't judge someone's heart as an individual unless you, you know them and they've explained their heart to you. As an individual, you don't judge, but as a corporate entity, we produce justice. That means bring me facts, bring me evidence, bring me eyewitnesses. It's time to judge. Different contexts. Final scripture tonight, Exodus 23, verse two. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Justice, justice, justice is what God wants. We're commanded to honor our leaders on an individual level. I get this question a lot also. But on a corporate level, we do not have to agree with their policies and we can work in a governmental system and through proper legal channels to get laws and policies changed the right way. Praise God we live in a country where that seems to be true here in Israel. Praise God that we get to stand as a light among the nations tonight as the only democracy in the Middle East. You can see why millions and millions are fleeing from some countries and trying to get into other countries. And if you didn't know what to think about this whole regional war and situation, I'm pretty sure that tells you everything you need to know about what's happening. People are trying to get out of some countries by the millions. And we can tell you here in Israel, the truth is friends, those of you watching online, people are trying to get into Israel by the millions tells you a little bit about our heart and what we're trying to do here. Let me close with this key phrase. The world has taught everyone to be so self-centered, including believers through the false gospel, that we have forgotten 
that proper interpretation of the Bible's teaching often involves understanding the corporate dynamic. And when you come up against this in your Bible reading and it feels like one verse says the opposite of another verse, I'm encouraging you tonight to remember this lesson that many times make sure you understand the context properly of those passages. Because it may just be the difference between an individual commandment versus the corporate commandment. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for letting your word become clear. Thank you for giving us this holiday to remember your goodness. Father, we say as a corporate dynamic, we don't want war. We don't want hate. We don't want any more death, Lord. We want an opportunity to love our neighbor, the people you put in our sphere of life influence. And Father, we pray for courage right now. Courage for our soldiers, that they would have energy to continue. Father, we pray for courage for those that are under the oppressive hand of terrorist organizations like Hamas or Hezbollah or the Houthis or ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram or others. We pray for courage for those people, no matter where they live, to rise up against evil as well. It's frightening. It's scary, but they need your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray all over Gaza right now, Holy Spirit, to fall over the people. All over Judea and Samaria and the West Bank area, Holy Spirit, fall over those people. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit falls over all of the Israeli soldiers, not only for protection, but at some level in the appropriate moment when they would have to make these tough decisions in the moment of life and death, that you give them wisdom to make a good decision. To spare as many as can be spared, but at the same time to produce justice that wicked would be put to shame and innocent would be released. What a trying time. We need your presence, oh God. We pray in Yeshua's name. Hallelujah. Ula, would you come and help me tonight? We want to take some of those words of being a light to the world. We want to see Yeshua's light in us. We want to see his miracles. We're praying for all of these miracles right now. Ula's going to help us light the Hanukkah candles as we move into night number four or day number four starting now. We start with the Shamash candle in the middle. It's a servant candle that lights the other ones. Much like Yeshua is our light of the world and our greatest servant that lights the others. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us holidays and customs and times of happiness to increase the knowledge of God and to build us up in our most holy faith. We weren't together on night number one, so I'll say this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who granted us life, sustained us, and permitted us to reach this holiday season. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the 
וזכרנו כאשר אנו מדליקים את נרות החנוכה הללו. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who performed miracles for our fathers in those days at this season, for which we light the Hanukkah lights in remembrance. Thank you, Lord, for your miracles in our life. Can you stand with me as we sing the Maud Sur together? <laughs> 